You have one new voice message. Hey, Mr. Max. It's Larry here from Yona. You know, the youth orchestra of Northern Alberta. Anyways, I'm just calling to invite you and the podcast listeners to our 8th annual Road to Joy fundraising concert. It's going to be live-streamed on the ESL YouTube page on June 8th at 7 p.m. So make sure to save the date. I hope you can be there to celebrate with us Yona students all that we have learned this year. We'll be playing some music with ESL musicians virtually, and you can bet that you'll hear our rendition of Ode to Joy. You can find more information to join the celebration and how to donate at winspearcenter.com. You won't want to miss it. See you later. For almost 70 years, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra has performed for its Edmonton audience. This episode, we take a trip down memory lane to hear some stories from the early days of the ESO by speaking to musicians that were there from the beginning. But first, why was the orchestra started in the first place? I asked musicologist David Grammett for his perspective. There are several orchestral projects in the first part of the 20th century in Edmonton. The longest lived one is an orchestra that was also called the Edmonton Symphony that started in 1920. And about the time that they were trying to get going, the journal had an article about how, how this was getting underway and wrote this very sort of memorable phrase, no city of any size or musical standing is quite complete without a symphony orchestra. It has been felt, therefore, that Edmonton should not remain behind other cities in this matter. It's easy to dismiss that and say they weren't really caring about the music. They, but I don't think that's really true. You know, there, there were people who really clearly cared about the music and were enormously dedicated to promoting it. But also, it was good for the city to do that. And as I said, that's not the first project. There was one, at least around 1912, the Edmonton Orchestral Society, it's not exactly clear when it ceased to exist. Certainly sometime during World War I, it, it, it died out, um, simply couldn't make it anymore. But there's a real dedication to it. In fact, Vernon Barford is an interesting character in Edmonton's early musical life, talked about that group. And he said, these players were union members, so they had to get paid. But they were so eager to play in an orchestra and wanted to see it succeed. So the majority of them turned over their paychecks immediately back into the orchestra just to keep it going. What they were making their money on was dances, theater music, playing at restaurants, sort of the kinds of things that supported a lot of musicians in the days before recording and especially before sound movies. But they wanted also to have an orchestra. So that's that's one factor playing into the establishment of classical music. Another is women. In 1908, you get what is originally called the Ladies Musical Club of Edmonton, eventually becomes the Women's Musical Club. It supports women teachers of music, for one thing, but also holds lectures, organizes musical recitals, chamber music programs, brings in visiting artists. You get 
operatic societies formed. There's, there's a Mendelssohn choir for a while. And this develops, I think, more in the late 19th into the 20th century. There's something about an orchestra, maybe because of the aura of professionalism around it, maybe because of the prestige that had accumulated around Beethoven and the symphonic repertoire uh, over the 19th century. But the orchestra does tend to get regarded as sort of the jewel in the crown. The second attempt at a, at a symphony orchestra uh, that started in 1920 made it into the early 30s. And it's clear that the Depression did that in. Having said that, it's hard to say how much of a factor the talkie may have been in undermining the possibility of there being a lot of musicians around who could populate a symphony orchestra. One of the interesting surprises for me as I started doing some of this work is just to see the sheer number of people who identified as musicians in early Edmonton. And again, this is this is not unique to Edmonton. The directories of the city, the phone books, one of the one of the nice things about them from a historian's perspective is that they're terrible invasions of privacy, but they list people's occupations under their entries. So, and, and happily now they're online and searchable. So you can type musician or music teacher and within the limits of the sometimes fairly poor scanning that they, that they did, you can get a pretty good list of the people who identified themselves as musicians across, across the years. And there's a surprising number of them because if you wanted music to accompany your movie, you needed live musicians. Before speakers were of a certain quality, if you wanted music to accompany your dinner, you needed musicians. If you wanted to have a dance, you needed musicians. Sadly, for all the delights of the classic Hollywood film score, it was also a kind of death knell for the existence of a lot of musicians outside of Hollywood or New York or, or a few other centers. So I think that not only did the Depression make it hard to keep that institution going? I suspect that the musicians were less available as theater orchestras died out. While the ESO wasn't the first orchestra in Edmonton, or even the first by that name, it is the longest running. Our wonderful cellist Rhonda Metzies sat down with her mother, Hope Metzies, who played violin in the orchestra when it first started, to hear some stories about the early days of our ESO. Hi, Max. It's Rhonda. Uh, I'm here with my mom, Hope Metzies, and we're going to talk about early days of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. So, mom, mm -hmm. I think what I'd like to start by asking you is what year did you join the symphony? I joined the symphony in 1952. 1952. And it was a marvelous mixture of professionals and people that had other work and came and played with us. So how big was the orchestra back oh, then? Oh, huge. It got up to about 80. That's so. awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. It was a real big bash. And there were some good musicians that were in good practice. And so we did a lot of Tchaikovsky in the first few years. <laughs> yes. Nice. And, and was that the, uh, very close to when you emigrated to Canada? Yes, it was a couple of weeks. Wait a bit, I was here on September 19th. And we started rehearsing in October. Wow. I know. It, it was a very strange time. 
You had just uh, graduated from the Royal Academy of Music in London yes. and emigrated here because of your dad mm-hmm. uh, consulting with the provincial government at the time. Yes. So what were your first impressions when you saw the city? It was lovely, but it was rather like going back a century. Yeah. Most of the roads weren't paved. I think you and dad said the other day that it, there were still boardwalks instead of sidewalks. Oh, they were lovely. I really miss the boardwalks because they sort of drained out the snow and they were everywhere. And so the symphony then uh, didn't have a concert hall. Where did you guys perform? Oh, well, we rehearsed in various schools and then we rehearsed in the community hall and um, we had our concerts. My glory, where did we have the concerts? I think you said the Capitol Theatre. That's right. They put a wooden platform on the front because we were quite a big bunch of people. And it was in the capital, and um, we did have one little accident in which a member of the orchestra went down somewhere between, I think, the addition and the platform in some way. And she was a good violinist, and so when she was going down through this crack, she held, she looked like the Statue of Liberty and held her violin way up above her head, and it didn't get damaged, and she sort of stuck before it got that far. (laughs) That's an instinct that I think every orchestral player can completely relate to. (laughs) Save the instrument. Save the instrument. (laughs) Besides being the venue that the ESO performed its first few seasons, the Capitol Theater was primarily a movie theater and the first place in Edmonton where you could watch a talkie. They even built a scaled-down, fully functional replica that you can visit in Fort Edmonton Park. Red velvet theater seats and all. Okay, so then I have to ask, and I know it's completely based on what income was at that time, but do you remember what you got paid for those rehearsals? Yes, this was awkward. We got paid $6 a rehearsal. I love it. (laughs) And um, after terrific negotiations, I was on the little group that represented the symphony. We managed to get it raised to nine. And then the union got really fed up and raised it to 12 and just sent the board absolutely flying as far as organization. And so who was the music director in the, those early days? Lee Eppner did a lot of work to get this together. And he was with us for quite a few years. And then we had a big gap of, of conductors coming from everywhere. And we had some real characters, honestly. You have a, a story that I love about... Um, the conductor who oh. was in his cups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, we had a conductor that was in his cups, as Rhonda said. And he was a borrowed conductor from somewhere. And we'll just leave him anonymous as far as a name. But he was a borrowed conductor with quite a reputation in, in Canada. And he took us through the first part. I think it had a bit of Wagner or something, a lot of brass, a lot of trumpets and fine stuff like that. And then we had our it was a bit odd the way he directed it, but it was automatic. He just looked in one direction, more trumpets, less horns, and he sort of just talked off almost automatically whether they really were playing out or not. And it was a bit suspicious, I was. We had a, a recess, and then when we came back, these trumpets, horns, brass, and everybody had been dismissed. We'd had the rehearsal that used them, and now it was going to be the strings. The conductor seemed unaware that this had happened. He started the whole rehearsal the same way. Now, we'll start from the beginning. Uh, One, two, three, four. That was hard because we were in three and he wanted four. (laughs) And the next thing was that he sort of said, more trumpets, more horns. 
they'd all gone. The place was blank. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and it was really something. He finally, after quite a little while of, of doing this, put his hand to his head and wandered off. So did the orchestra tour? Uh, yes, we did tour. Um, we toured when Brian Priestman came. Mm-hmm. We had two buses, smokers and non-smokers or something, because they were a big number. I just need to insert now that in today's symphony, we have the party bus and the non-party bus. Oh, well. <laughs> they're both non-smoking, <laughs> but after that, yeah. they're probably quite similar. <laughs> we went out um, west, but our conductor felt he'd just like to drive himself. But unfortunately, we were all there, the far end ready, and he wasn't there. He'd been held up by the police for speeding. (laughs) So so we wondered where he got to. He sort of puffed and huffed his way in just about on the moment when we should be starting. (laughs) So that was all right. And did you not also do an Arctic tour? I, I remember a story that you guys all flew on a flying fortress. Oh, gosh, yes. That's right. It was a flying fortress, and the only way it would leave the ground with us was for us to stand at the tail end. Oh, I don't know why the tail end, but uh, that's so it could leave. And when we arrived, almost everybody was deaf. It was the most peculiar concert. Everybody's ears got blocked up because it didn't have the conditioning uh, for going at the height we went. Since the late 50s, the ESO has toured the Yukon and the Northwest Territories several times, traveled all over Western Canada, and made their first performance abroad at Carnegie Hall in 2012. You also, um, at times, have talked about where recitals happened in Edmonton at that time. There was not really a recital hall, but I seem to remember uh, that you said that amazing soloists, including, I think, Heifetz or maybe Rubinstein, came through and played at the... It was called the Cow Palace, and the fact was that during concerts, the um, trains would come through and go, (laughs) you know, right in the middle of a concert. That's right. But we had marvellous people. Yeah. And we had Anna Russell, and we had um, Rubinstein, and Heifetz. came through later. That was later. Yes, that's right. Then the other thing um, that we've spoken about that was a really big deal during that time was um, the opening of the Jubilee Auditorium. Oh. They must have been a game changer because you'd been playing in the theatre, oh, in the yeah. Capitol Theatre. Oh, it was very nice. Yeah, to have a really a dedicated concert hall. Oh, yes. We, we, re- we really felt great yeah. there and having our own changing rooms and, you know, the, the whole thing was a great treat. Oh, tell me about orchestra dress. Oh, orchestra dress. We were told on the very first concert we could have black or white uh, dresses because, you know, it came rather suddenly. I was the only one in white. Oh. And I found this was really awkward because I was trying to fit in with everything and here was I in this, I hadn't got a black dress anywhere, you know, and so I came in looking as if I was going to be married or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember you telling me too about the orchestra pit when it was new. Um, It was tradition to raise the orchestra at the end of the opera so that they could also be acknowledged in the applause, not just with a gesture, but they were actually lifted out. Oh, yes. We used to travel up. And and the leader of our orchestra was tying up his shoelaces. And so when the thing went up, he had his back to (laughs) to, (laughs) To the audience. audience And that, (laughs) Sandy, Sandy, Sandy. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that is awesome. Oh, yes. And you had some really dear friends in the orchestra. Oh, yes. There were some very nice people that, that came. And there were people that were very talented, like Marguerite Marsantovich, who came in a bit later than the beginning, and Dorothy Langbow and her brother. So of the conductors you worked with, who was your favourite? Oh, Brian Priestman. Yeah. Absolutely. Brian Priestman, the main thing about him was that he didn't have any obvious favourites. Everybody was equal. In fact, after I had lost, I lost the end of a finger in a badly botched operation, and Brian Priestman said, oh, welcome back, Hope. And the leader of the orchestra said, well, can she play still? Well, I mean, is she able to play now that she's got this damaged finger? We'll find out, he says. Yeah. But, you know, he was extremely fair. And and that mm. injury, we may as well talk about it because it's now out in the open. The injury to your finger was well, caused by... by well, I, <laughs> um, there was a time when little babies had diapers and yes. used pins. Yes. <laughs> Rhonda's looking guilty. I know. <laughs> because, unfortunately, I pricked my finger with Rhonda's diaper pin and it went completely bad, my finger. It, it went um, all puffy and all poisoned. And the surgeon looked at it. Um, and, but unfortunately, he had to be away when they were going to do something about it. And he left me to his understudies. And the understudies just cut the end off. And that's your, the end of your first finger. The end of left my first hand. finger, left hand. Jeez. You lost the nerve endings in oh, that first it's just, finger. It's just a point. And it's the violin needs these nice pads that you have on your fingers. And sensation. Oh, yeah. yes. It never was the same playing after that, actually. Luckily for you, uh, violin wasn't your only instrument. So. Oh, that, that's right. Um, I didn't start the piano till I was nearly 12. And, um, and I loved the piano. It was so easy after the violin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, was it easy. Yeah. Yes. So music continued, even if the symphony didn't. Oh, yes. And then we joke that I've been trying to do penance for my diaper pin <laughs> ever oh, <poor> since. Wanda. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't keep it from her. She, she found out at an early age and has borne the burden. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing those beautiful memories. I love them because they've kind of been part of my life. They have. Um, but it's so lovely to hear you tell those stories. And honestly, when I think of Edmonton with boardwalks, it just it sounds marvelous. It was. <laughs> okay. Was. Okay, darling. <laughs> Thanks, Mommy. Rhonda is not the only second-generation ESO musician. I asked our next guest to share some stories from his long career with the orchestra. My name is Brody Olson and I've been a long-time member of the first violin section of the Edmonton Symphony going way back to 1961. My history, though, goes back many years, back to 1929 in terms of how I got here. Now, in 1929, that was the start of the Great Depression, both my grandparents lost their farms. So Mum, at the age of 17, and Dad, at the age of 18, found their way to Edmonton and found themselves in the same boarding house right across from what is now the legislature. Dad was working in the grocery store and the grocer said, well, son, you don't want to be doing this all your life, do you? And Dad said, no, I'd like to study the violin. So Mr. McDonald, the uh, store master, uh, got lessons arranged with Roderick Cook at the Alberta College. In 1936, he decided to open his own music school. There were various names over the years, but the, the name that would be most readily recognized in today's world is the Olson Music School. 
We brought our instruments in from West Germany and Czechoslovakia by the train load. We had like a thousand violin students and we taught them in group. There were community orchestras in the Edmonton area at that time, but the orchestra that we now know is the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra under the auspices of the Edmonton Symphony Society started in 1952. My dad was one of the founding members of the orchestra at that time. Now, in 1958, there was a violinist that came to Edmonton by the name of Thomas Rolston, a very famous name here in the Edmonton area, and whose daughter is a famous cellist, Shauna Rolston, and his brother-in-law was the conductor, Lee Hepner. Tom was the concertmaster of the Edmonton Symphony and was the rehearsal conductor for us. In 1965, we hired, um, I guess you could say a full-time conductor by the name of Brian Priestman. When Lawrence Leonard came in 1969, we were still a community orchestra. Myself and another fellow in the orchestra decided to write a draft copy of the master agreement. And we started with a master agreement, a daytime, full-time symphony orchestra in September of 1971. We were going to now be playing and rehearsing during the day. Because in the 60s, we would be rehearsing at night. And it was a wonderful opportunity for people in other worlds, whether they be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or whoever, they could do their daytime job and then come and play with the symphony at night. But that all changed in 1971. Um, many of the players, of course, uh, they had to uh, take uh, a backseat to what was now going to be the new model for the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra with a master agreement. Those were some very interesting times because we did a recording with Procol Harum, which became world famous. The album Procol Harum Live in Concert with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra was released in 1972 and made orchestral history. It sold half a million copies and became the first album with an orchestra to achieve both gold and then platinum status. Also in the early 70s, a wonderful local fellow that we all know so well by the name of Tommy Banks brought in what is called the In Concert Series through a program from ITV. We did 47 or 48 of these live performances. The first one we did in 1971, we had Tom Jones, and then the second week, Engelbert Humperdinck, and we thought we'd really made it here in Edmonton. Uh, we started bringing in conductors from all over the world, and soloists, of course, from all over the world. R Rogerio Ricci came, he was a Paganini expert. We all were absolutely mesmerized by him playing his uh, Paganini uh, concertos with us. Uh, we've had uh, Igor Oistracht. It was memorable when he came to play the Beethoven Violin Concerto and the M Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. We've had fantastic pianists that have come here, singers. Rostopovich, the great Russian cellist, came. He played the Dvorak Cello Concerto, and we were at the Jubilee Auditorium. And he brought along his dog, a little dog, and he brought the dog on stage. Someone would carry his cello in, and he would carry the dog. The dog would sit under the uh, chair while he played, even during the concert. And so at the rehearsal, I was kidding him. And I was saying to him, I, I know why you have your dog there. You got your dog because every time the dog barks a little bit, it's telling you you're playing out of tune. <laughs> so we, <laughs> so we, we had a tremendous laugh over that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, <laughs> that was fun. I mean, um, you know, getting into the orchestra in 1961, that was a memorable moment. I'll never forget when I did the audition and then they, they called me up and they said, yeah, you've been admitted. You know, like 
the enormity of that, you don't even realize when you're back then. And it's not until you, you get older and you look at it and you say, wow, this has been an incredible honor and a privilege to be part of this group. I take great pride in the fact that I've been in the orchestra all these years. Brody is one of the longest serving tenured orchestral musicians in the world with 60 years of service. The longest, Jane Little, served for 71 years in the Atlanta Symphony. We have a, a tremendous audience group and a support group in the Edmonton area, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate it all. And we just hope that as soon as we can get over this uh, uh, corona business, uh, we can get back to the things that we love to do best, and that's to play and perform for all you folks and to see all your happy faces in the uh, Winspear Center. All the best, and good health and happiness. Bye for now. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Rhonda and Hope Metzies, Brody Olson, and David Grammett. In this episode, you heard Rhonda's recording of the third cello suite by J.S. Bach. Check out the show notes for links to learn more about our guests, ESO history, and more. And if you're a musician looking to tune up your skills, July 5th to 11th, the Rusty Musicians Summer Camp at the Winspear Center pairs ESO musicians and other professional musicians with adult campers for five days of classes, rehearsals, and sectional instruction, all leading up to a performance on the Winspear stage. You can follow the link in the show notes or visit winspearcenter.com slash rustymusicians to sign up. Don't wait, because some instrument categories have already filled up. This episode was produced in Emasquitchi, Wiskaigan, also known as Edmonton, on the traditional lands referred to as Treaty 6 Territory, a place that has been a meeting ground, traveling route, and home for many Indigenous peoples since time immemorial, including the Cree, Métis, Dene, Nakota Sioux, Soto, and Blackfoot, whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our vibrant community. My name is Max Cardilli, and if you want to connect with me about the podcast, you can write to eso.offstage at winspearcenter.com. If you like our show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us, and we'd really appreciate it.